A warm welcome to the Herty School. Herty School. The Herty School. The Herty School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Herty School in Berlin. Dear students, dear guests, welcome to the Herty School. I'm Henrik Enderlein, the president of the Herty School, and I'm delighted to welcome you here tonight to celebrate the launch of our new Center for Fundamental Rights. This event is taking place on a day which throughout the last hours became a horrible reminder that the discussion and protection of fundamental rights in Germany and beyond is more important and more necessary than ever. At this very moment, thousands of people are gathering a few blocks from here next to Brandenburg Gate to stand up against racism and for an open and tolerant society, and rightly so. Even if what happened in Hanau last night was an isolated act by an isolated individual, and let me emphasize, we don't know yet whether it was an isolated act by an isolated individual. But even if it was, it is our historic responsibility not to treat it as an isolated act. Racist terror, referring to racist motives, take place in a broader setting um, in Germany, challenging fundamental rights, and the values of the open society um, more and more in these times, and uh, this is not something we can tolerate. In my opening speech as president in September 2018, I highlighted the role of the Hertie School as a nonpartisan actor, but I explicitly mentioned one exception. When it comes to the discussion about the open society, we are not only prepared to speak up, we have a moral obligation to speak up. There are many students here tonight. Some of you will have received messages from parents, friends, closed ones, asking you whether you feel worried today about what it means to live in Germany as someone who is perceived as racially different, religiously different, sexually different, or simply as non-German. Let me send out a very, very clear message to you. You're welcome here, whoever you are. You live in an open society, you live in a tolerant society. You enrich all of us, and we will do whatever we can do to make Hertie School a home for you, to make Berlin a home for you, and to make Germany a home for you. <laughs> dear students, dear guests, today's event in Hanau is an exception. Very often, the violations of democracy, democratic values and fundamental rights are not in the headlines. When a migrant child in Germany is denied access to education, this is a violation. When a gay couple is insulted in the streets of a Russian village, this is a violation. When felons are disenfranchised from their voting rights in many US states, this is a violation. And there are many more examples, countless examples. It is no secret that the protection of fundamental rights is under pressure around the globe. Domestic governments and political movements explicitly deny fundamental rights primacy and even violate them, violate them without apparent impunity. With apparent impunity. Some political actors and scholars question the centrality and utility of fundamental rights, claiming that they undermine other values, such as security, cultural identity, economic development, or social justice. On the other hand, many insist on the centrality of fundamental rights to address enduring and new governance challenges, such as migration, 
the climate crisis, new technologies, to name just a few. The Center for Fundamental Rights at the Hertie School was established to address exactly these themes, the resilience and relevance of fundamental rights under changing political, economic, social, and environmental conditions, and the future challenges to the protection of human and fundamental rights. The center has now been up and running for six months. It was officially established last September to strengthen research, teaching, and outreach on fundamental rights at the school. Already, the center has a vibrant community of researchers, of guests, of students, a range of events and collaborations. And you can see, just look around you in this room tonight, that this is the right topic. Initially, and I say this to my dear colleague, Bashak, I'll come back to you in a second, there was some discussion about whether we wanted to establish a center for fundamental rights or a center for human rights. In German, Grundrechte or Menschenrechte. In the end, we decided for fundamental rights. Fundamental rights include human rights, but go a step beyond that. Fundamental rights also include the rights enshrined in liberal democratic constitutions, like the German Basic Law, our Grundgesetz, or the European Charter of Fundamental Rights. But I'm sure I'm already walking on far too thin ice, and I will leave it to a fantastic expert panel to comment on that point. The success of the center so far and the future success would not have been possible and will not be possible without the incredible dedication and hard work of Bashak Chile, the center's first director and professor of international law here at the Hertie School. So much of the center's success uh, are thanks to her efforts and the efforts of her team. Bashak, we appreciate all the hard work you've put into this, and we wish you all the best for continuing work on this center. Bashak will soon be joined by Catherine Costello, sitting next to her. She will be on the panel in a minute, who is also here tonight and who will become the co-director of the center. Catherine currently still is professor of refugee and migration law at the University of Oxford and will be joining the Hertie School next September as a professor of fundamental rights. Before introducing the other panelists, I would like to thank the Hertie Foundation for its generous support, which has allowed us to establish the center and to continue on this journey. The two other uh, people on the panel, plus a moderator, are outstanding scholars, practitioners of human rights, fundamental rights, and justice in general. <coughs> Susanne Beer serves as justice on Germany's federal constitutional court. She is also a professor of public law and gender studies at Humboldt University and the William W. Cook Global Law Professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Patricia Sellers is the special advisor for gender in the office of the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. She's a visiting fellow at Kellogg College at Oxford University, where she teaches international criminal law and human rights law. Tonight's discussion is going to be chaired by our very own Arjun Apadurai, Professor of Anthropology and Globalization here at the Hertie School. Arjun is also the Paulette Godard Professor of Media Culture and Communication at New York University. And now I will leave the thin ice, sit down, and listen to your conversation. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, and welcome to the Hertie School.
Thank you, Henrik. Uh, thanks to all of you. I should say two things before I uh, have our distinguished panelists speak. Uh, one is that I am surely the least expert person possible to uh, chair this conversation, but I'm very interested in it. And it's a very difficult uh, uh, challenge because we made a collective decision that this would not be uh, a panel of set pieces where everybody speaks for 10 minutes and then there's some questions and we go home. But it would be a real conversation. Uh, and it's my uh, honor, as well as my onerous uh, responsibility, to make sure there is uh, a conversation both on this side of the room but also importantly on your side. So our intention is uh, around seven o'clock, we will transition from this conversation, however live it is, to bring you all in in the best way that we can. And I want to emphasize that though we have people of all ages, of which possibly I'm representative of one end, uh, we are very keen to hear from uh, the students in the audience. And I will make a special effort to make sure that you are heard, at least some of you, uh, because we have, don't have as much time as we might wish with this terrific audience. So from now till 7 will be a conversation here uh, with some small structuring. And then uh, at 7, we will uh, go on to Q&A. But really, we hope a continued conversation, except on a larger scale. That said. Uh, I won't repeat the uh, introductions, because that would swallow up time better given to our distinguished panelists, except to say these are very remarkable people, uh, all of them. I'm honored to make their acquaintance. I know something uh, of all of them, quite a bit about my uh, colleague Bashak uh, and my soon-to-be colleague Catherine, but also quite a good deal about uh, our other two distinguished uh, panelists. So what we thought we would do, we've had a kind of pre-conversation uh, about some key questions that pertain to our subject. So we are somewhat warmed up, but uh, still there's plenty to go. So what we thought we would do is have a brief set of remarks uh, followed by a second set from this side. The first would be that each of our uh, panelists, and I think we just move like this, it's the simplest thing perhaps, uh, starting with Suzanne Baer, uh, will say something about the point of view or the location, position, history, biography from which they come to be engaged with the question of fundamental rights. So that's question one. We will all go through this. And then there'll be a second question on which I will keep you in suspense. <laughs> Please, Suzanne. Thank you very much. And um, thank you all for taking the time and being as curious as Arjun to be here tonight. Um, it is actually an honor for me to be on the panel uh, with you here, and I particularly am grateful for Patricia Sellers to come because she did immensely important work in the international human rights scene. So if the question is, where do I come from? As all of you, I come from many places. Uh, right now, officially, I come from the bench that is the Karlsruhe bench as a sitting Federal Constitutional Court of Germany, which means that fundamental rights to me are the beginning and the end. It's all I do. 
there's not more and there's not less. They're the standard, that's the focus, that's the lens with which I approach each and every issue. I cannot think otherwise, <laughs> that's it. However, and this is a remark on what Hendrik Enderlein said earlier, I'm very happy that this center is called, and namely in English, fundamental rights. In German, Grundrechte would be a bit narrow, but in English, fundamental rights works perfectly. Because even as a national constitutional court judge, for me, fundamental rights start certainly, that's how I swore my oath, with the first chapter of the German constitution, which is called Grundrechte, that's fundamental rights literally translated. But I'm happy to say that the German Constitutional Court, and we are not the only one, is out there to practice what I call embedded constitutionalism, which means we interpret the German Constitution, and it's still my only standard, in light of the European Convention of Human Rights, in light of all ratified human rights instruments from the United Nations, in light by now, and even applying and um, in uniformity with the European Union Charter of Fundamental Rights, thus, even as an only national, small constitutional court justice, I feel very happy in an area and in an arena where fundamental rights are broadly understood as multi-level protections of the very fundamental needs of people. So that's how I take or frame the issue. Let me add one thing. We are all always more than just our office and official duty. I'm an academic and a professor and I come from critical, radical, feminist, queer, legal studies. That's a perspective. Yeah. Then, in my early days, there was a youth. There was something which is now called activism. At the time it was called being in a movement or it was actually called meeting on Monday. Or it was called women's movement, lesbian activism, um, disarmament and peace movement and environmental movement. Interestingly, by now, it would be for me every day for future. Because I feel very much in line with very many young people who exactly take those issues up again, and I'm very happy about that environmental issues, envir uh, peace issues, um, equality still is, I think, highest on the topics of, on the list of topics we need to care for. Thank you. Thank you very much, Suzanne. Pleasure. Okay, thank you very much, Hendrik and Arjun. Now I have to say something about why I wanted this center to be called a human rights center. <laughs> that wasn't what I was prepared for. Anyway, um, so my initial reaction to having a center called a center for human rights was because it has human rights as a universal appeal. Uh, these are standards that we hold anyone and everyone into account and uh, if you're socialized into talking about rights, human rights comes to me very naturally. So uh, as an international lawyer, the word we use is human rights. Um, constitutional lawyers like Susanna, they use the term fundamental rights because this is uh, what most chapters in constitutions are called uh, from India to Turkey to Russia, these are called fundamental rights. So I was sort of more drawn as an international lawyer to the term human rights. Um, then I had to do some research because I lost that battle. As, as you know, our center is called fundamental rights. And of course now I'm strongly committed to the idea that fundamental rights is an umbrella term that covers um, constitutional rights and international human rights. So I'm happy with the, uh, with, with the name of the center. So I've survived having run, you know, done a bit more research. I found a way out of it. So I'm now happy with it. So where do I come to fundamental rights? Um, 
the first thing I think fundamental rights for me are mainly questions about legitimate government and legitimate governance. Um, so respect for fundamental rights is what we do to assess legitimacy of modern institutions, uh, primarily states, but not necessarily only states, other actors who may be in positions uh, of governance. That seems very clear, but you can say, well, what are these fundamental rights? So, you know, which, which one are you talking about? Is it right to life? Is it torture? Is it economic rights or social rights? Of course, the list of fundamental rights is, is very long. It's, it's not one or two rights. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, here's the word comes back again, it actually gives us a list of civil, political, economic, and social rights and say we have to think about fundamental rights in a very holistic way. They're not just about integrity rights or democratic rights, they're also uh, claims to equal treatment and non-discrimination in economic and social fields. But something that has always attracted me to fundamental rights as a scholar is their dynamic nature. We did not talk about fundamental rights as we talk about them today um, in the 1950s. Uh, some of you may know, may not know, in the 1950s, um, homosexuality was criminalized in many jurisdictions, including in Germany or in United Kingdom or in many parts of the West. The criminalization laws have carried to all the colonies. A lot of the colonies uh, also carry, still have these laws. And in those days, people did talk about fundamental rights, but they did not think that criminalization of homosexuality was an intervention in the right, the fundamental right to privacy of a person. They did not think that. Not a politician, not a single judge in Karlsruhe. I don't know, there was no Karlsruhe no, there? there was a no. So, uh, so it's a dynamic concept. So what people think what these rights are in the 1950s or 60s and 70s, they evolve. Our imagination of what these rights are, what their scope is, how they're specified and applied to new moral, social, technological situations change. So once you're interested in fundamental rights as a yardstick for legitimacy, you're in this business of thinking then, well, how do we interpret what fundamental rights are now, today, for this and that political community under this and that threat? And that obviously makes it a, an incredibly interesting subject for, um, for a researcher. On the personal side, of course, you know, everyone gets into fundamental rights, everyone has a personal story. Um, I think my first entry point uh, was my memories of the 1980 coup, uh, when, you know, I had a few um, police uh, gendarme coming in and sort of, uh, you know, destroying all the bookshelves and, you know, taking my father to detention where I didn't know where he was. And I was like, this is really... Interesting, well, I didn't think that, I was very scared. <laughs> I was very, very scared, but my first entry point was a personal experience of a coup where my own father was taken away. And so my first entry point was civil and political rights, right? So during the coups in military juntas, the first thing that goes away is your loved ones. They're taken away and they're tortured, they never come back. And of course, a lot of movements around the world, not just my story, I found out lots of Argentinian friends and Mexican friends and friends from all over the world, they got into human rights because they had a story or their mother had a story or their best friend had a story. So that's how I walked in. But of course, when you walk in, you don't stay with just that then you see the full range of rights. And I'm very uh, pleased uh, in that sense that I've 
come to appreciate um, not just the civil and political, but also the broader range of rights, the social, the economic, um, and the like. Thank you, Basha Haq. And now, Patricia. Thank you very much. Well, let me start with the personal, and then I'll get to the fundamental, right? Uh, of course, I, I, well, it's not of course, because I could be from anywhere in the world, except for you've heard my American accent by now. <laughs> One of the tax cab drivers told me it was cute this morning. I think it depends on who you're speaking to. But I'm an African-American. I'm a, not a recent immigrant to the United States. I'm a descendant of slaves. Uh, my family has been in the United States. We can trace back at least until 1821 when we have our family reunions. And so I come from a point of view where at one time I had, or my ancestors had no legal personality. They could not appear in a court, either as a plaintiff, as a defendant, more or less as a judge, you know, or as an attorney on either side of the case. Uh, to be enslaved was to be in a type of social death, but also to be in a type of legal death. And that included the children born of slaves, the females, the males, the grandmothers, and that even included the dead. The dead had no rights to descend and leave property. And the future children who were unborn had no right to inherit. So the ideal of having a legal personality leads me to one of, one of the most fundamental rights I think that exist, and that is access to justice. How does one access justice? And so a couple thoughts I'd like to throw out in the beginning of our conversation is how do we today even have a right to access justice for human rights, the word that we international lawyers use, or for fundamental rights? And it's very mixed. International criminal law justice, in one sense, was something that was very, very academic between 1945 after Nuremberg and Tokyo up until 1994, it's something that basically uh, lawyers at the International Committee of the Red Cross practice or military attorneys. Uh, none of us walked around saying, well, I wonder what kind of you know, genocide rights I have today or how are my you know, war crime you know, responsibilities. They were just not part of the normal everyday conversation and particularly among lawyers and neither in the general population. And human rights were something that was kind of fuzzy and wuzzy and warm and couldn't stick anywhere. And so no one would say, can't wait to take this to a human rights court. That was just the line to start the party or the end the party. But today we have access to justice. As imperfect as it is, we have hybrid courts that we know have been set up with special court for Sierra Leone, the international uh, criminal court for the former Yugoslavia, for Rwanda, uh, we have a court for the extraordinary crimes that occurred in Cambodia. We have regional human rights mechanisms, of course, the European system here, but also there is the budding African system with its commission that is beginning to take form and wonderful decisions. And we have the inter-American system that's not as well known of, I think, in Europe as it should be. It is putting out some of the most fantastic jurisprudence, everything from indigenous rights from the right to have your torture being investigated. I was uh, an expert witness on a case about two weeks ago that looked at questions of gender stereotypes when a young girl in high school fell in love with the principal. And the principal said, yes, if you have a relationship with me, you'll probably pass that exam. She becomes pregnant. She commits suicide. And they even ruined the autopsy of her body based upon gender stereotypes. 
Why did she fall in love with him? She was asking for it. The Inter-American Court is dealing with every day serious human rights violations that shows where stereotypes stopped your access to justice, stops the prosecutor from taking you seriously or the medical authorities. But what I would like to say is that we are losing access to justice too. The more we live in a world where things are economic crimes or corporations discuss infractions that concern us only among themselves in specialized courts is removing a little bit of our legal personality. And so that's one of the questions I'd like to throw out in terms of our fundamental rights tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Catherine Costello, Catherine, please. Thanks, Arjun. Um, uh, I guess as a scholar, um, I started to look at questions about fundamental rights, originally actually just out of an interest in equality in labor law. And I guess as a feminist, you look at equality law and you see that it promises a lot and doesn't always necessarily deliver. And I think that has sort of set up a stance that I kind of find just sort of inescapable when looking at fundamental rights commitments and um, that they promise, but they don't always deliver. And then this brings us into the whole domain of thinking about contestation and how marginalized actors can invoke rights and make them real and the interplay, and I think that's really crucial, between political and legal struggles and struggle for legal recognition, but also the fact that legal institutions are also often part of the problem. Uh, so when I think back to that, I wrote a master's thesis decades ago on the limits being imposed on positive action in favor of women. Um, and they, these were legal limits that in part had been imposed by the German constitutional court and then were being reflected into EU law. Um, so I suppose that's, that's sort of a theme that I've continued with. But um, um, I think one of the sort of formative sort of um, things that I did as a student was to come and study in Germany. Um, and I worked, and this was in the 90s, I'm aging myself, uh, with uh, an asylum law practitioner. Um, and then I think from that sort of very uh, sort of formative experience, it just struck me, and this has continued to be my area of academic interest, that questions around membership, citizenship, access to the polity, migration, asylum, the routes to become a member and to secure your right to reside in any given place are really just one of the most fundamental fault lines that um, where we uh, you know, divide up humanity into their access to, you know, the whole very basic notion of, you know, how your life is going to emerge and whether you merely survive or thrive. Um, and those questions, I think, are really questions that are underexplored both in ethics and in human rights law. Um, and I think that's why I, I still find them really um, compelling. Um, and originally, I used to look at those questions, I guess, in terms of my writing, um, very much looking at the EU as this great bastion of transformative hope. Um, and I spent a long time thinking about, okay, if the EU is configured in this way, and it's not just about states, it's also about peoples, and if it's about constitutionalizing a right to mobility, this is going to be the context in which we can sort of escape statism. Um, and part of me still thinks those arguments have some purchase, but I've also become much less starry-eyed about the EU as it's become an entity with its own borders, its own border enforcement agencies, a lot of its own executive power, which unfortunately does seem to be often escaping accountability. Um, and the other big transformation, I guess, in terms of my career was um, shifting in about five years ago to work in an interdisciplinary center very much focused on refugee studies where most people 
uh, focus on uh, refugee questions where most refugees are, which is not in Europe. Um, most refugees, over 80%, or and certainly most displaced people are in the global south. And so I've just sort of had to, uh, and I, I pledged actually when I took that post to sort of become less Eurocentric. So it's taken me on a very interesting tour of trying to understand um, refugee law and refugee experiences in, in different jurisdictions. Um, and the interesting thing I found there actually is that in the interdisciplinary study of refugee studies, most people tend to either look very anthropologically um, and often not legal anthropologically, but like sort of just, you know, uh, looking at people's experiences on the ground or in a very limited um, elite political frame to try to explain questions about why states host refugees and so on. And when I come in and say, but didn't you know the courts in Kenya are incredibly powerful and they've prevented the government closing Dadaab camp and they've ensured that this group recognition which Somali refugees have in Kenya continues and, you know, by the way, you know that this is also a court which is annulled in a presidential election, you know, so there's a huge amount of African constitutionalism. Um, I found being that voice in the room, I know this is quite incongruous as the Irish person, um, has been uh, very interesting, but that exchange with African constitutional scholars um, for me, it's one of the most interesting things I'm engaged in at the moment and trying to sort of bring those questions about constitutionalism and questions about membership and seeing how they're contested in, in very different um, places in different ways and thinking about how very marginalized people like those with no legal status or those who are stateless or whose claims for asylum have been rejected, for example, um, can be included legally and politically is sort of what's uh, drives a lot of the work that I do at the moment. Well, thank you uh, very much, Catherine. <laughs> Thanks to each of our uh, panelists for this uh, very uh, rich uh, introduction to their uh, arrival uh, at some points of view. Uh, and my own response, having had a little pre-conversation, is this uh, round may give the impression of a high degree of convergence <clears throat> uh, about which we can all feel you know, good, I certainly do, but I also know there are some differences uh, uh, in point of view and that will be the subject of our second round, uh, at least indirectly, because the second question is something that has already been touched on but not frontally addressed, but will be now, I hope, which is our fundamental rights in the world, uh, or any part of it, gaining or losing ground? It's a very straightforward question, but hardly an easy one. So now, may I ask again, starting with Suzanne, whether we can get into that, which is, I think, uh, the place where we will see some important points of difference and potential debate. Please. Five years ago, I would have said they're gaining uh, importance, weight. They're way more implemented than ever. And empirically speaking, there were more constitutions, constitutional courts, Supreme Courts, human rights institutions in the world five years ago than ever before. So quantitative measurement, great. If you ask me today, I would say they're losing big time, but they're not lost. And that second part is the most important one. And there are many, many aspects and factors one could emphasize, and I, I, I guess we, we will collect a few, for me, 
the really dangerous um, characteristic of that development of losing um, or of destruction and of attack is that it comes in very smart and thus specifically dangerous ways, orchestrated attempts to undo the very foundations, this whole protection, promise, access, etc., being a person, the right to have rights, etc., etc., is based on a very orchestrated attempt to undo that in the name of it. And that strikes me as very, very complicated. And what I'm referring to is what Kim Shepley called autocratic legalism, describing developments in Eastern Europe primarily, but they're not limited at all to Eastern Europe, and they're certainly for Germans not the other's problem. They're our problem, and they're incidents which worry me as much in Germany as there are incidents around the world. So this autocratic legalism pretends that in the name of law and true democracy, they're doing the right thing, but what they in fact do is they take apart first, usually, depending, courts, the media, or the academy in some order or the other. Why? Because it's the critical voices, it's the independent voices, and with courts, it's the stop signs that could really block their efforts to take over power. And we see that in many, many in worrying and growing numbers of countries around the world. And I see it, and Madeleine Albright described it as plucking the feathers in little, little, boringly formal changes of some procedural, unimportant, unknown law to all of you. And these little, 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 one feather after the other destroys a court or destroys a university or destroys cultural institutions. And we see those attempts in Germany as well, by the way. You could follow particular parties' attempts and proposals in parliament, and you will see that they're following an authoritarian script, which is internationally distributed, and I mean a script, where they are undoing, again, legal institutions, since we're talking about law, legal institutions, and particularly fundamental rights-protecting institutions in the name of the law. So they're calling for better justices, better in line and in tune with what the population really wants. That's a quote from a German minister of the interior of a state. And I could add to these quotes. And these are very, very worrying ones because it's not easy to attack them. And there's a second dimension to it. Not only do they you know, pluck the feathers in the name of the law itself to destroy the law, but also they do, the, do so with comparatively abusive arguments. So what usually happens is that autocrats point to the German system of appointing justices to the federal constitutional court as a brilliant system in the world, and let's do it here as well, and so we're fine. But context matters. You cannot take away one element from one legal system, put it into another one, and think, you know, it works fine. It does not. But this abusive use of comparative arguments is particularly dangerous in a world where we're also cosmopolitan. And we all, you know, don't want to be arrogant about anyone. And we like comparative studies. And so it's, it's, a, it's a tricky move they're making. And the last one, third one, is maybe for all the scholars and people engaged in critical thinking, which I hope you all are, one that worries me specifically because it's what I call the capture of critique. What happens is that particularly 
attacking courts, constitutional and supreme and human rights courts and institutions. What I see very often is a deliberate attempt to enlist smart, critical academics that have been written about judicial review and its problems, and there are problems, but judicial review is also an indispensable means of democracy, about juristocracy, judges having too much power. No, I mean, yes, there is a risk of judges having too much power, except for me, but um, <laughs> there is a risk of judges having too much power, but this critique, which is usually a nuanced study of developments around the world, particularly in Europe, with the ECJ being a driving force of many, many developments, is now taken by autocratic legalists to undo the very system. And this is a warning also to scholarship that it, in these days, in contexts today, one has to be really careful who enlists one's you know, great paper or saying or headline or 140 whatever signed thing um, because there's a danger that we are all gonna be taken on board whether we want it or not to undo the very institutions all our ideas of access and justice rely upon. I just make one thank you, Suzanne, comment, uh, a headline that comes out to me from your comments before passing on to Bashar. And that is something that interests me too, because it relates to law, but it goes beyond law, and it involves India, where my mind is a lot. Uh, also a big place, 1.3 billion. Uh, so we should all be a little worried about it, in addition to China. And that is the destruction of democracy by means of democracy. I see this as one thread inside which the destruction of universities by means of universities, the destruction of law by means of law, something terribly disturbing and somewhat new because it's not about old-fashioned, monarchic, imperial. It's something uh, from our times. But I just make that as a comment before passing it on to Basham, please. Now, we were trying to find points of disagreements, but I don't know if we are going to, to succeed uh, in, in the sense that um, fundamental rights are losing ground. And I may be even more pessimistic, maybe. Uh, you said they are not lost, but uh, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll try that. Uh, but of course, um, probably many might share this view. I mean, you might say, well, what is new about saying that? You know, we, we can all do this. But what also interests me is, um, how we understand and explain this, right? So, what what are, what are the what, what does it mean that it's you know what does it mean to say that they are losing ground? And and of course, one uh, you know issue is that you could say, well, what is your perspective? So, in what kind of point in history, you know, are we judging back from a uh, hundred years or hundred and fifty years? You know, so some people make the argument that you know things are actually getting better. You know, it depends on the time frame that you take. Um, some might say, well, it depends on where you look at. Maybe maybe they're not doing so badly in Iceland. I don't know if there's any Icelandic person here. Maybe in some places people are very optimistic. So if you come from the UK or, I don't know, from Turkey or Russia, you will have a very different view than maybe if you come from Iceland. Um, but I'd love to hear if that's the case. So so there are all these variations, you know, in a way, in answering the question. But I'll still attempt um, to say I think they are losing ground. And I think uh, they're losing ground in... Uh, in a number of different ways. One is that this, this very idea that fundamental rights is a yardstick to assess legitimacy of government or governance, it's no longer uh, sort of the theory or it's not lo no longer the idea 
So this is a very, fun, you know, this is a very fundamental loss of fundamental rights. Let's put it that way. You know, there are lots of political movements. There are lots of um, economic uh, movements, economic powers. They think it's not a way to assess legitimacy. They have other ideas of how to assess legitimacy. So this is a very major uh, kind of viewpoint, and it, this doesn't only take place in Germany or in the U.S., but actually in many parts of the world, there are lots of movements, economic and social. They have an alternative, perhaps versions of shades of communitarian sort of ideas of, of organizing and assessing and harmonizing society, of modern society. So I think this is a deep uh, and a serious challenge. It's not about what happens, uh, you know, here and there and, and so on and so forth. It's a, deeper, um, it's a deeper problem. Fundamental rights as an idea is not a very old idea as well, right? So this wasn't around two, three hundred years ago. I mean, you could say, you could push it, but I mean, you know, some people say Magna Carta, but not really. I mean, you know, this is, that was a very limited sort of concession to very limited groups, but the way that we understand it now is a very modern idea. So it's actually a lot more fragile uh, than we may think, <laughs> you, know, we, you know, in our little reality of whatever, 80, 90 years of, this is how long I suppose we all live. But of course, what, uh, so this is a fundamental, I think, challenge, and it's not just happening in one or two countries. It's a more of an ideological, deep ideological challenge. Um, and I think it happens in the West, in East, or North or South. I don't think it's, uh, it, it's, it makes a difference. But of course, the second uh, losing ground point that worries me most is the loss of ground of fundamental rights in liberal democracies. That worries me more because this is where we had them. You know, they are rooted. They, we had built institutions and things were actually working. Uh, because if you're in a jurisdiction where there are no fundamental rights, you know, it's not about whether they're gaining or losing ground. If you come from Somalia, you may say, well, what do you mean losing or gaining, you know, in what time span? I mean, from 1990 or onwards. But what we see is that the liberal uh, democracies are actually, maybe I'm agreeing with Susanna a little bit, you know, the, the language is there, the discourse is there, everyone is respecting uh, fundamental rights, but the questions are, which of them shall we respect, right? So it's not the full range, but we could choose, for example, one or two, and maybe drop a couple of the others. So right to be not uh, stripped of your citizenship uh, has lost ground in the United Kingdom, for example, right? So that's that's not there anymore, but it's important that... I don't know, there's freedom from torture in detention, so that's fine. So if uh, people hold on to one right, they think that they're actually doing fundamental rights talk. So what I see in liberal democracies, in particular in, in Europe, is this sort of the narrowing down of the menu of rights uh, that people say these are the, you know, let's pick one or two, the right to property and, you know, a bit of fair trial, uh, and then actually take a lot of these gains that we have had over the hundred years to shrink uh, the list of rights and also uh, very comfortably, very easily qualify them. Because if you lose them where we had them, I think that's a more serious problem than in places where we never actually had a regime that, that was able to operate uh, through the, the lens of, of fundamental rights. Thanks very much, Basha. Well, I think it's very hard to disagree with uh, both of you. So let me agree, and, and then I'll, what I'll say is I'll differentiate some points, okay? So it's not exactly in disagreement. I think one thing that we have to be very conscious 
about and very clear about is where we're continuing to make progress during the backlash. The backlash only exists because there's something to have a backlash against. It's because fundamental rights became a type of lingua franca, became a type of measuring uh, rod. And because now it is being weakened, speaks to the fact that it had to be stronger before, and it had a strength. But at the same time, I would say, uh, in direct relationship to that there are other fundamental rights that are starting to creep up. Sometimes they are so much in an incubation stage that we don't recognize them. But let me point out a couple that I think are growing. I mentioned before uh, what's referred to as the Cambodian genocide. Well, at the extraordinary uh, criminal courts of Cambodia, the facts came out that it basically was a crimes against humanity situation with a couple discrete pockets of genocide. Genocide was committed against the Buddhist monks, against the Sham, who are the Islamic uh, Cambodians, and the Vietnamese uh, immigrants, but immigrants who had been there for decades and decades. Uh, the fact that one can discern that you can commit a genocide against an immigrant community is quite revolution revolutionary when one thinks that before the Genocide Convention was always and only used in terms of religious or racial beliefs. The other thing that the Cambodian uh, court system brought out is that there were thousands upon thousands of forced marriages between men and females. So this entire notion we have of the forced marriage of only being the girl-child soldier as a victim, now we have men and females being victimized by forced marriage carried out by the state, which is a violation of the fundamental sexual rights, also the male and the female. And then the third thing that comes out of the Cambodia Tribunal, which I think is astounding, which is not getting, I think, the attention it should, is that the reason that those forced marriages were performed was not just because the mother and the father, in essence, were enslaved. They were asked to breed children so that those children could be taken away and raised by the Khmer Rouge state. And now we understand the very nature of looking at breeding in a more modern context in relationship to a crime against humanity or a form of enslavement, but also we can understand and look back and see how breeding often accompanies authoritarian regimes or some type of reproductive access or lack of access. And that is something that we didn't quite understand fundamentally before. But now we can look at that, and we can look and see what happened at Yazidis, women who were given uh, birth control so that they wouldn't breed. We can look and see it in the Guatemala cases, where children were transferred from some of the Ishil Mayan communities to Guatemalan officers, the transfer of children during time periods of genocide. And of course, we can go back to the transfer of children in Argentinian jails, where mothers were killed, and the children were transferred to Argentinian army officers, the fundamental right of the grandparents to recover the existence of these children. And the fact that we do have stolen generations that Australia will have to apologize for, that Canada will have to apologize for, that the United States. So while we are losing, <coughs> If we look closely, we are also concretizing and gaining new fundamental rights, in particularly coming out of the international criminal law sphere. And I'll mention a last one, which I think is revolutionary, 
Other than myself, I wish someone else would write about it. Uh, and it's at in the more recent case in Tuganda, uh, which takes place in um, Democratic Republic of Congo. For the first time, the appeals chamber and the trial chamber agreed that in a militia group, if the adult militia members commit sexual violence against the child militia members, that that's a war crime. You say, no brainer, right? But usually you can't have a war crime in a non-international armed conflict against the same side. War crimes happen against the opposite side. But for the first time, other than the crime of child soldiers, recruitment or enlistment of child soldiers, we have war crimes being committed against the same side when we have children. That has moved the Teutonic plate. So we should count our gains while we're in the midst of losing fundamental rights too. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, just maybe uh, listening, Patty, to you, I, I don't have any expertise in international criminal law, but I think thinking about those connections are really interesting because you get the benefit of looking backwards at atrocities and then also kind of taking the never again uh, reflex and trying to say, well, how do you take that seriously? And of course, that is part of how the Universal Declaration was uh, the impetus for the Universal Declaration and for the whole post-war edifice. Um, and I think a scholar who's done great work on this is Catherine Sickink in terms of optimism. I mean, I think of her work on the Justice Cascade, which is also looking at how kind of transitional justice structures and can come together and kind of their links with um, safeguarding uh, human rights more generally, and in Evidence for Hope, which is just such a wonderfully empirically grounded work. And I, I think that sort of scholarship um, kind of really shows that a lot of the more ideologically loaded critiques of human rights are actually not well empirically supported. Uh, so I think for an audience in, a, in an institution like this, where a lot of people do have empirical skills, I think that's, I think, something that we can start to think about a lot more. Um, so I guess that's on an, an optimistic note. I mean, I, d I don't think there's anything really optimistic to say about the rise of authoritarian or autocratic legalism. Um, but I guess on that theme, I had a, a, a kind of a set of reflections too about international law games and how international law can also be the site for these sorts of shenanigans. And I, actually, I was listening to a scholar who was formerly based in um, Hungary talking about um, you know, various ways of sort of gaming the system and how this is part of the modus operandi of autocrats. Um, but when you mentioned citizenship stripping Bashak, I think it's interesting that in these contexts, European states who want to strip citizenship from, from, of their own nationals, um, usually do that by enabling dual nationality. So the norm against statelessness still has some purchase. Um, so they will spend you know, huge amounts of money getting legal experts to come to say that Begum is actually um, has Bangladeshi nationality, or that somebody has this, you know, completely inert in Iraqi nationality, so that therefore it's okay to strip away British nationality. And other states in Europe, Norway, for example, have enacted laws to enable dual nationality, which looks like a liberal move, but it's been entirely motivated by a desire to have a power to strip citizenship because, and it's a, a sort of an interesting example where somehow they, they don't want to be seen to be rendering people stateless. That norm still has some purchase, uh, but they do want to be able to spectacularly just engage in this sort of political game of, of stripping people of their nationality. Um, 
I think in the area that I work in mostly in refugee law, you have a sort of a similar dynamic with very often individuals sort of relying not only on the sort of 1951 refugee definition as if it was the only way of conceiving of refugees, which of course globally it's not. It's quite limited and many regions have much wider definitions of refugees and there's a lot of state practice which would you know, lead you to a, more, a wider definition of refugee. But also like treating people who apply for asylum and just barely miss it as complete pariahs and objects of criminalization, stigmatization, incarceration, deportation, as if that was sort of the only way that you could legally respond to the predicament of people who, in good faith, apply for asylum and don't get it. Um, and sometimes they don't get it because of serious problems in adjudicatory mechanisms, and that's something I'm studying in, in a lot of different contexts. But even if they don't get it because they don't meet the definition, I mean, I don't think that should close all political, moral, and legal inquiry about what the appropriate response of the state should be. And in a lot of the discussions, I think, and not only in states where there's an authoritarian or an autocratic turn, but more generally in Europe, there's this assumption that the law demands deportation because otherwise your policies are ineffective. And you know, in lots of other areas, I think, yeah, well, policies are ineffective and then you readjust, people don't pay their taxes and then you do a bit of an amnesty or you just you know, reset administratively. That's kind of how the administrative state works. It's imperfect. You never get full compliance with the law, but you know you don't have to reach for the biggest stick that you have available to you. And I think that sort of weaponization of the rule of law against vulnerable individuals is something that needs to be pushed back against too, because the discourse is generally, I think, and maybe this is to echo Susanna's point, so we're agreeing again. You know, the, the rule of law is being invoked in ways that are you know, very often oppressive. And there isn't much of a pushback using that same language and saying, well, actually, no, another account of the rule of law would say, no, at this juncture, you just press the reset button. You say, we failed administratively here, but we have to deal with these people humanely, um, and so on. Um, and maybe the third and final point that I was going to, to mention on the gaining or losing ground, and I, I think here I don't have an answer in those terms, but I do think it's interesting that I think most people now are aware that new tech, not, not even new technology, there's the way that technology has evolved and the amount of power which various platforms have um, is really astonishing and in and of itself uh, problematic, not just for democracy, but also for um, the way economies are run and that we don't really have good ways of regulating um, big, not just big technology companies, but even small ones and the way our data is being used and. Um, obviously, that's a huge issue in and of itself, but it is interesting that a lot of the sort of thinking about how we should be regulating very powerful entities is framed in terms of human rights. Um, maybe, it, maybe that's just what I read, but I was reading a report that just came out by the Danish Institute of Human Rights about human rights and platforms, which was bringing together a group of scholars and lawyers. Um, so the questions about how to regulate are being framed in human rights terms, which I think is interesting in and of itself. Well, thank you very, very much for your little bit of time. I see one hand is already up. Are, are you, sir, a student? No. Would you be so kind as to wait? Thank you. Students, we'll take two or three, and we hope to do this twice, though this may be a utopian project. Any students who would like to speak up, this is the time. We're going to take two or three. If not, our more senior colleagues will... Uh, be happy to take the space that you are voluntarily giving up. So 
The clock is ticking. Yeah. There. I see a genuine student, I think. And two. Uh, 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 yeah. So three, please. Three, one, two. And that gentleman there, also? Yeah. Okay, well, they, there's a third person here. Ah, here. This lady here. Okay, so please. Please. Can you just say who you are? Hi. Um, my name is Cosima. I'm an MIA student here at the Hurdy School. Could you please stand up? I think you better chance is Hi. Um, and so I feel like everyone's talked about how fundamental rights are losing ground, but if that's happening, what needs to happen to make that stop? Thank you. Beautifully economically put. Uh, yes, uh, there was a second. Did you see who the, uh, Yes, that gentleman there. So there was a cluster right here. Yeah. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Georgios Yogas. I come from Greece and I'm a PhD student at the Law Faculty of the Humboldt University of Berlin. So uh, all of the speakers uh, addressed the issue of uh, the recess of fundamental rights on human rights uh, in the context of um, the delegate system in which states function nowadays, and especially European states and Western states. So I'd like to ask them to make a brief comment on the notion of illiberal democracies and their rights, especially in Europe and states like Poland and Hungary nowadays, and what's their stance on how this phenomenon actually influences and affects this recess of human fundamental rights. Thanks very much. Wonderful. Thank you. I think there was uh, someone here who had their hand up, yeah. but they changed their minds. Okay, uh, this young lady here, well, there are many, so it's a bit arbitrary, <laughs> but. There'll be another round, we promise, though we may have to break the promise, but Hello. please. My name is Katarzyna, and I um, study development studies at FU. And my question is rather a follow-up question on Cosimas, actually. Um, I would like to hear your opinion on um, strategic litigation in the context of fundamental rights and whether that would be um, yeah, an apt um, yeah, option, actually, to, to fight against the loss of human rights. So in a, in a bold rights. adjustment, thank you. One more question from yeah. back there. Uh, there was an, uh, yes, please. Yeah, hello? Can you hear yes. me? Yes, uh, gentleman right. way back there. Uh, yes. Right at the back. Right, well. right at the back. <laughs> hello. Uh, this okay. is Simone here. Is someone speaking? Yes. Okay, me. <laughs> yes. Okay, you're number four, and then we'll have responses. Please. Yeah, this is Simone here. I have a question. Uh, it is exceptional uh, what you are saying here and uh, everything. It's uh, really well, uh, I don't know, you, you have an exceptional rhetoric and discourse. But I wonder if it is um, uh, well aligned uh, with the political language. How would you transpose your argument here in a political language? I sense a gap between uh, how, the how the politicians are acting and what is being discussed in uh, the academic environment. Thank you very much. Now, we have a, a menu of questions, and I would just say to our colleagues, starting with Suzanne again, that you can respond to any of these. You can respond to each other, because we have to do everything in a short space of time. So please. Yeah. Um, illiberal democracy is a non-term, uh, because it's a 
prime example of the abuse of democracy in the name of democracy. So I think it's a prime example of what I tried to describe as the autocratic legalist strategy to undo the very foundations, uh, things we care about rest upon. Um, I think I would like to make a comment on what needs to happen. That's a broad question and a brilliant question. I love the question. And one is not to drop the law. And I'm very happy that my colleagues now convinced me to be a bit more optimistic than I was before. But not to drop the law and not to disregard the law and be very smart and nuanced about the law. There's a politics of human right. And it's important to use that and use it as argument and mobilize around it, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also a legalistic reality of human and fundamental rights, which is sometimes denounced as, you know, this kind of bureaucratic, boring, gray zone of law school, which it is not. It's a highly, highly important, fundamental moving in the sense of moving things, instrument, to, you know, be better around those issues we were talking about. And so I, would, I, I, I keep thinking of additional examples of where things are growing and where you people are needed with your thoughts, with your <coughs> analysis, with your clarity, but also with your courage and your willingness to defend the boring institutions like courts, responsible executive or administrative actors or legislators and not denounce them as the other, the system, the enemy, but be nuanced and refined about it. And the issues I, I, which come to my mind are, in addition to what has been said, climate justice. There are courts around the world with brilliant, brilliant rulings, very, very interesting rulings on what law could do, fundamental rights, in fact, can do about climate justice. For German lawyers, there's a little ways to go. And we have pay cases pending, so I will not comment on the details. But interestingly, we have cases pending. These cases are results of strategic litigation, partly because by now German law schools, Humboldt University included, run law clinics, which need funding, by the way, if anybody's willing, <laughs> which desperately need funding because they are an attempt to bridge the gap between maybe theory and practice, but also differentiate between a political endeavor and a political motivation and political activism and the limited yet powerful ways law allows you to engage in in doing what you want politically. So my question would not as much be transposing it into political language, but thinking about what law can do, what politics can do, and where what joins forces to, to, to tackle issues um, at the same time and in a, in a common, in a common um, enterprise or endeavor. I think we have to stop using the language of your opponents and stop valid, valid, making it valid. And one of the phrases that I continually hear is gender ideology. Okay, and the more we say it, the more we give it power. Uh, there is no such thing of gender ideology and fundamental rights. There might be gender equity, there might be gender equality, there's no gender ideology. Your opponent uses that because somewhere it's almost a type of projection of their own ideology. There have been very few authoritarian regimes that did not have a gender ideology of what should men and women look like, 
how should they relate to each other, how should they produce children for the state, how they should take care of children for the state. Often religious institutions have a gender ideology. Who gets to be the priests, the imam, the, the nuns, who can be Christian? Okay. This is projection on their part. We shouldn't take on that moniker and act as if it's something that is occurring within fundamental human rights because it's not. What's occurring on this side of the bridge is questions of equity, questions of access, questions of fundamental fairness not gender ideology. So that is one thing I would say that what can we do? We, we can stop using the language against us, against us, by ourselves. That, that becomes you know, quite kapkleskis or whatever you say. And then the other thing I would say is that we need to challenge human rights. We're still too limited. I would say go much further. Right now we know that at times corporations are much bigger than the state, yet we're holding the state responsible for human rights, where the corporation, which is more powerful than the state, says, yeah, let the little kid be responsible for human rights. They don't have to. Well, I think there's some precedents, particularly in international law, international human rights law and international criminal law, where the state cedes some of its power or joins its power with the rest of the international community. So therefore, torture is never torture just against um, the German state's responsibility, even if it occurs here, everyone has been harmed. Every state, but something even bigger than the state, the international community. So sometimes I think we need to have the international community responsible for human rights violations and not the individualized states, which can be weaker. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think I'll, I'll echo uh, one of the things that um, Patty just said in the in the sense that language and thinking about, I mean, at the very micro level, I mean, it's a question, how do we stop it, right? I mean, what are we going to stop, you know, in a way? I mean, you have to start in the micro level about what, you know, we have to be very clear about what we mean when we talk about fundamental rights. You know, why are we using it? If someone uses it back, are they using it? the way that we understand it, you know, what are the standards of expectation and duties and so on, it, it really matters. And I think it's not just for law schools, it's precisely for schools of governance, it's for, um, it's for engineers, it's for computer scientists, it's for everyone. I, I think th this, is, this is one of the issues that we, we suffer from, is that maybe a very small group of people have actually had spent, uh, you know, a time to think and work on these issues, and we're suffering from that. Even though people are genuinely interested, this is about being a good citizen of any country or or, or the society. To be part of this, I think we have to take it very seriously, um, and then we have to sort of start uh, from from there and, and go up. Um, I was thinking how to squeeze in this wonderful thing that I watched the other day into our event, uh, a rapper called Dave. I don't know if you have anyone listens to him. He um, uh, had, a, had a song at the Brit Awards uh, a few days ago, and he has this saying that, you know, there's no such thing of um, being a little bit of racist. So either you're racist or you're not racist. So coming back to this notion of an illiberal democracy, you know, there's no such thing as an illiberal democracy. You, you're either a democracy which has to respect fundamental rights and rule of law, or you're not a democracy. So uh, it's a bit like, you know, you can't just be a little bit of racist. Um, and I think we have to think carefully about that. There are shades. 
okay, maybe in, in Hungary you don't get tear gassed. Uh, in Istanbul you will definitely get tear gassed. Um, maybe, you know, in the UK uh, you will not be. I mean, but, you know, you have to, I think this sort of constantly repeating Hungary and Poland, uh, I don't know if you're doing analytical justice to understanding what is happening uh, around us. Um, I'll leave it at that, I think. Um, yeah, these are such wonderful questions. Um, I mean, what was coming to mind in response to Cosima's question and the Simone's question about language was, you know, sometimes you make that the language your own. So um, when we were talking earlier about um, India and the turn to authoritarianism there, there are people in the streets chanting the preamble of the Constitution. And, um, you know, so there is a sense that, you know, the language can become part of the movement. Um, but, but I take your point about the disjuncture. And the other um, example that came to mind there, and again, it's an optimistic one, was... Um, political campaigns in Ireland, which led to two constitutional changes, one about equal marriage and the other about reproductive freedom. When I think those campaigns were very interesting because the background was that the constitution and the judges historically were part of the problem. Um, they had sort of been hijacked by patriarchal religious conservative forces, or they were them in the case of the judges, in, certainly in, you know, when I grew up in Ireland in the 80s and 90s. Um, and the very slow civil society campaign actually chose not to frame those issues purely in terms of a sort of a liberal individual freedoms, but very much in a, this way about talking about interconnectedness and an intergenerational community and saying, you know, and some of it was very cheesy and sentimental, but it was all about, you know, if it was appealing to older voters, because these, the Irish constitution can only be changed by referendum, it was saying, you know, think about your gay son wanting to get married to his partner and, it was invoking, you know, it was very, it was not about saying I as an individual deserve a zone of freedom. It was saying we all live together and we need to respect each other's um, choices and, and live together in a way that is respectful. So I think those campaigns were quite interesting in terms of developing a language that was very much somehow a sort of grounded, but it wasn't communitarian as such, because I think that usually if you say communitarian, it smacks of a more sort of conservative bent. But this was really about interconnection. And I think there was a political campaign which was, you know, tapping into a very, a society that is fairly interconnected anyway. And I think that was interesting. Um, and I guess in both of those examples, I'm talking about political campaigns. The Indian one, we, I don't know if we know where it's going yet, but I, I find that very moving. And I also found it very moving when uh, European judges were going to Poland to protest in their judicial robes. I mean, that to me was really striking. This is not, you know, young people are meant to protest, that's your reflex, but you know, it's not normally for middle-aged judges to take to the streets. And I take your point, Bashak, it's not all about Poland and Hungary, but I do think, you know, if there is a rule of law crisis, then it needs to be met with innovative forms of social action. Um, and maybe finally on the strategic litigation point, um, I mean, I do think litigating human rights is obviously hugely important. Um, but if it has to be strategic, it needs to have a strategy. And I'm often struck in the areas that I work in when I read, you know, the wrong case taken at the wrong moment. Obviously, I'm sitting in Oxford with this great luxury of being able to say, if only they had thought about framing it differently. But occasionally, you know, there's a lot of very gung-ho lawyers out there who want to you know, you know, there's a lot of vanity in lawyering, you know, 
heaven forbid. Um, so, so I do think you know, strategic litigation needs to be strategic. There are clients that lose. There are, if you lose big, then you really can set things back. Sometimes keeping the law ambiguous is actually advantageous. And um, I mean, there's a strategic litigation summer school that the center runs. So I think these issues need to be talked, to really need to be examined. Um, but I think what strikes me very often when I look at kind of successful strategic litigation is that it is also part of a political campaign. Mm -hmm. um, so when I think of three victories that I'm writing about at the moment, just to keep myself optimistic, um, there are, it's a case called the Pulanapa in Canada about the overbreath of smuggling pro prohibitions, where people wore their, a badge saying, proud to aid and abet, um, and were being criminalized for assisting um, asylum seekers who by definition are normally irregular entrants, and they won a case before the Canadian Supreme Court on those prohibitions being overbroad. Um, the second one is a case brought by Cédric Carroux, a French farmer who was assisting people um, during the refugee crisis and continues to do so, and again, the domestic and EU definitions of assistance to irregular migrants are, I think, overbroad by any measure. And then the third victory, although I, the, I understand the actual text of the legal decision itself isn't available, is the one concerning Carola Raketa and the Sea Watch crew who were doing rescue at sea in the Mediterranean. But I understand from Italian lawyer friends that the legal principle which the court uh, based its decision on was simply to say saving lives cannot be a crime. Um, now, one way you could say, well, if you need to go to court to establish that baseline, we're in a very bad position. <laughs> but on the other hand, it is a legal victory of sorts. And, you know, those victories come about because people really put themselves on the line in the context of these struggles. So maybe that's a good place uh, to conclude. Very little time left. Thank you very much. Uh, on behalf of my generation and my position here, I'm going to sneak in two thoughts of my own, and then we can see if uh, my senior colleague who was here, are there, might wish to ask a question, then we may be out of time. But let me sneak in my two thoughts, uh, which are reflections and possible questions, maybe for later. But uh, the first one is this, that when I had to think about today's conversation, I did what many of us do, which is to ask what the etymology of fundamental is, and of, to my non-surprise, it's fundamentum, Latin. But then I realized there are two ways to go with fundamentum. One is, what is foundational, fundamental, two rights, and what are fundamental rights? These took me in two different directions of my thought today is, how do we think of those two directions? Is one more important than the other? That is the foundation of rights, or foundational or fundamental rights? These are two different discussions. Anyway, that's one thought. The other thought, reflecting on many things I've heard today from all of you as well as here, is there's something going on in the world, I think, visible in Europe, but even more visible in some more difficult, stressed places, is the turning of a kind of package of values, institutions, norms, strategies, which is young, indeed, and fragile, into an a la carte menu. So there's a kind of loosening so that indeed you can take this and not that, you can take democracy without liberalism, you can take elections without law, you can take this without that. All this used to be part of a kind of fairly, I won't say indivisible, connected package. Now it's an a la carte menu. And I see this coming out very strongly, and my question then is, what is the politics of this? 
what is the law of this, and as an anthropologist, what is happening in the dynamics of global connectivity such that uh, in a world which is also cosmopolitan, also full of mediation, contact, communication, mutual knowledge, what's happening is a capability to pick and choose. Why is this happening? I think it's a deep question. But I leave it there and ask my colleague who has been very patient here to, oh, uh, another colleague. OK, then you and you. Well, we have too many hands and too little time. So there will be okay. two questions, and then we will have to stop. So sorry. OK. Please. Uh, I'll make it short. Also, oh, okay. I appreciate the priority given to students. Just one comment very briefly, um, as you are now working increasingly here in Berlin. Um, by the way, I'm here from the German Institute for International Security Policy. Um, in Germany, do take this point seriously about weaponizing the rule of law, because this is a particularly German discourse, I think is very dangerous, that you know the Herz des Rechtsstaats, as it's put in German, the full hard side of the rule of law, it's been very much used here, and I think that's something to watch out for in this national debate. So my question, um, uh, two very brief, the one is, uh, ask as you wish, um, the, the one is Europe has this kind of reversal of uh, gaining protection to refugees. At the same time, we want third countries to increase their protection standards for refugees, as we just saw with the uh, judgments also now with ref Morocco is responsible, not Spain, and so on and so forth. So do you see an immediate impact of that already, or is that still something that's somewhat decoupled? And secondly, and this is a very broad answer as you wish, I feel there is a bit of a missing philosophical underpinning here that do we still believe in this kind of march of you know, struggle for recognition, rights are winning out because ultimately this is what we are all striving for, or are the march of rights still something that is actually only due to the struggle of forces and sometimes the one side wins and sometimes the other side wins and what we can do is yes try to make one side win but we don't have the story behind it anymore that is actually something that is a higher aspiration than just winning the one or the other battle so we're losing these big narratives and I wonder whether we can resurrect them. Thanks. Uh, so my question is like follow up what you say about the private sector and I would like to hear a little bit about what is the role of the private sector in human rights guarantees, especially because, well, for me, uh, fundamental rights or human rights is not just a standard, are some mi minimums that you need to guarantee, but sometimes those minimums are you can access only if you have like certain privilege or resources. That, uh, like for example, like where I'm from, from Colombia, uh, we see how the private sector, like, can violate like massive human rights, especially for like underprivileged communities. But at the same time, uh, the private sector act faster than the state. Doesn't have like so many like bureaucracy steps, or people can just like approach it easily. Um, so I would like to know uh, what is the role. I know that they're like theoretical is like derogatory principles in all of these uh, business and human rights, but like in fact, I don't see how that is working. And I think that the evolution of human rights is actually on the private sector also. So I would like to hear from your point of view, what is the role? So we have a very short time, so Thanks. maybe a minute each, or a little more <laughs> depending on who wishes to speak from our side. And then we will start. Maybe very briefly then, on the sort of European practice of trying to contain refugees elsewhere, I think that's an old story. So that, you know, I can, 
cite material from the late 80s with scholars saying this is the tragedy of our times, that we are not willing to allow people who are likely to claim asylum to access European territories um, legally. And, and in my account of things, this just backfires spectacularly in 2015, where you have a massive refugee situation in Syria. Obviously, 2015 wasn't only about Syria, but without Syrian refugees, it wouldn't have tipped over, I think, into something extraordinary. And today we have a million, almost a million people displaced again in Syria and Idlib. So, you know, in terms of a context in which the struggle of brute power is what's defining things, I think, you know, Syria is it. Um, but I would say, just maybe to conclude then, on the philosophical underpinnings, I guess, I'm not sure we need to have consensus on them. I think we just work from having you know, some sort of an overlapping, even overlapping consensus might be putting it too strongly. I mean, that was the beauty of the 1948 declaration, that we don't need to agree on everything. Um, we just need to agree that we commit to these and then move onwards, and that there's structures and institutions which can be very open to having different interpretations and different accounts of human rights. And human rights aren't meant to exhaust political questions or every question about distribution or what kind of political communities we live in. Um, so in some ways, I'm kind of comfortable with a lack of kind of grand narrative because I don't think we need to share it. We just have to share some sort of basic commitments. And then, and then you know, we have institutions and political struggle and context to, to take us from there. I think someone now, thank you, Catherine, could have the last word because we are at that point in the clock. Um, yeah, I guess we can, we will expand. We do not have the story. We do not have one story maybe, but I was always skeptical regarding one stories. So I do disagree. I think we have many stories that form a collection or we have many voices that form a chorus and I think it's a very, very strong one. Globally speaking, but also locally speaking. There are many, many human rights or fundamental rights stories which do not come out as legal case descriptions, but are utter concerns about respect, dignity. Dignity is a big one on the list of terminology in political discussions. Um, even freedom and liberty are back in somewhat lefty social circles. So interestingly, I think the language of human rights is not at all dead. Instead, it informs movements today and it even um, reaches issues which have not been legally framed as topics in the human rights scene, but are now um, taken on board in, in those efforts to, to move forward. So I think there is a grand collection of many, many stories which still forms a very, very informative and strong force behind such efforts. The, I think key, one of the key challenges in human and fundamental rights developments in the future is what, what happens with the real forces that shape our lives today, which may not, not be the state anymore. The state is still there big time in many, many regards. But it may at least also be corporations, private actors, private individuals even, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, or I know, that there are very interesting developments around the world. My court has three judgments out, which many people critically reflect upon, which say, first, if you have a an airport, like in Frankfurt, and people want to rally in that airport, which is formerly a private area, there is a fundamental right that obliges the airport to allow for a rally. Well, some 
people would call that a revolutionary move. I wouldn't, it's application of the law. But <coughs> it's something to say. And for Germans, particularly moving small cases make big law, we said last year that if private associations run the soccer stadiums and they ban a soccer fan from visiting a game, which is a fundamental concern <coughs> for many people, these private associations are bound to fundamental rights. For soccer fans, this is not a small case. For lawyers like me, it's somewhat in betweenish. But conceptually, it's another little step. And there are many, many more. The European Court of Human Rights obliges states to protect private people, particularly women, against domestic violence, other private actors in their homes. The obligation to protect is one other move. So there are many, many like hooks already where you can start working on in these areas, including data protection, which may be one of the most dynamic fields where things really, really move in very interesting ways. And again, the idea then is, Take it in your hands. Join the conversation. You don't even have to be a lawyer. Sorry for that one. But you have to be smart and nuanced and differentiated in your analysis and in your strategies <coughs> to move that. We are way beyond, and I'm very, very happy and grateful for that conversation, which leaves me with a ton of notes here, that we did not <coughs> fall into that, oh, human rights, the dream, and are we sad that it's not working anymore? But we were way more refined, and we have to be. We have to be, not copy the language of the enemies, but have to be smart and good and nuanced and careful on all these ways. There is no guarantee for success, but there's a huge promise out there still to be delivered. Thank you. Those are very bracing words. Uh, they have to be our last words in this forum. There will be, so I have a few words to say, only of thanks. First to our distinguished panel for really tackling some very large issues in a very small space of time and in a rich and open way. Thanks to all of you for listening. Sorry to those of you who could not raise their questions. This is the clock, it's not me. Um, but the last thing I have to do in addition to thanking all of you, thanking Henrik for his gracious opening remarks, and all of you present, is to say that we have a reception about which I have some important words to share. And that is to tell you that our caterer for this evening is, and now my pronunciation is going to fail me, Café Seidenfaden, which is part of the social association Frau Zucht Zukunft. Okay. Café Seidenfaden provides work and vocational training, qualification and rehabilitation for women with a history of addiction, and otherwise underprivileged women. Established in Berlin in 1993, this project has assisted and supported over 1,300 women in their professional development. And so we, the school, are pleased to have the opportunity to support the organization in our event this evening. And I think the reception is very near us somewhere, right there. So thank you all, thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at hurdy-school.org.